0: This conversation on COVID-19 is made possible by Discovery. Hello, I'm Alec Hogg and welcome to episode 25 of Inside COVID-19. The easing of lockdown restrictions dominates this episode, featuring highlights of South Africa's official announcement in that regard and practical advice for businesses. And then, in a moving discussion, we'll hear from our BizNews colleague Chris Bateman why being infected with COVID 19 would be a likely death sentence for himself and other immune suppressed people. Also, the HSRC report on what the lockdown has done to South Africans. UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson and his nation's fight against the invisible mugger and why it takes so long to recover after being forced to use a ventilator inside COVID-19 Trumpers News South Africa registered 185 new confirmed cases of COVID-19 on Sunday taking the total thus far to 4546 One more virus-related death increased the national total to 87. The country is significantly ramping up its testing with over 168,000 tests now having been conducted. South Africa's lockdown moves from level 5 to level 4 on Friday the 1st of May. Lots more on who is affected and how it works coming up. South Africa is among many countries taking cautious steps to ease lockdowns as the growth in new COVID-19 cases, now at almost 3 million globally with deaths at 207,000, starts to slow around the world. Most notably, New Zealand said it had virtually eliminated the virus from its shores with no widespread undetected community transmissions now evident. China reported just three new cases. A record daily low. Taiwan has reported no new infections in more than two weeks. In the worst affected country, however, the one that has a third of the world's infections, the United States, even there is a beginning to ease back on lockdowns. In the hardest hit New York, Governor Andrew Como on Sunday outlined a phased reopening of the state. In the UK, Prime Minister Boris Johnson, who was in intensive care for three days, is back at work and says the country is passing through the peak of the pandemic. More from Boris later in this episode.
1: Inside COVID
0: 19, Trumpers News. In the next
2: phase of the lockdown, an additional 1.5 million people are estimated to be able to go back to work. Details were presented this weekend by the Minister of Trade and Industry, Ebrahim Patel, on how the government plans to reopen sectors of the economy with strict safety measures in place on the 1st of May. He said the government would be seeking feedback from industries, businesses and trade unions on the measures.
3: Now, if we look at the economy as a whole, if we add these roughly one and a half million persons to those who are already working at the moment, it means more than four out of ten workers in the economy will, in phased ways, be back at work. That's just over 40%, depending on the final list of sectors and activities and the final schedules for education. We will, of course, release a firmer uh, estimate once the final list uh, of reopened sectors has been completed following the processes uh, that Minister Lamine-Zouma has outlined. I want to turn to the new activities that uh, is proposed for reopening. In agriculture, uh, forestry and fishing, that whole sector will begin to reopen because that now will include logging uh, and forestry, as well as horticulture, the transport of livestock and uh, animal auctions, uh, of course, under clear social distancing uh, directions that will be issued. In manufacturing, there will be a further partial opening of the sectors. The sectors will not be open 100% during level four, because we need to give firms an opportunity for a phase return to work. We need to begin to test the systems at factory gates, at work areas, in the canteens, in bathrooms, in the screening of workers, in transport, uh, in arrangements for those who have the symptoms of COVID-19. And of course, also to progressively increase the number of people who are on the road moving to work and moving from work. As a broad baseline, uh, 20% of all manufacturing workers will begin to restart during level f- uh, 4, but some subsectors of manufacturing will have a higher number of workers, a higher proportion of workers who will be able to return progressively to work. Still not to 100%, but to more than 20%. They include uh, the following sectors, children's clothing and winter clothing, We know how important it is for families to be able to get warm clothing. Part of fighting the virus is uh, to avoid the cold. Blanket manufacturing for a very similar reason and other uh, bedding and uh, computers and mobile phones so that we can enable more people to work from home. Some car manufacturing and the components that goes into cars some manufacturing of cement and other construction material, as well as hardware, because as construction starts, they will need the stocks of these uh, basic raw materials that are, are required. And, of course, stationary production, because we've got to begin to get ready for the return of, um, of uh, workers to factories where they'll need stationary, and uh, down the line also uh, the arrangements involving higher education and and, uh, and schooling in general. So that covers manufacturing. If we look at the shops, and uh, they are the retail sh- uh, stores, the wholesale, wholesale stores, uh, some additional opening of retail uh, will will take place in level four. We recognize that sh- shops are a big vector of transmission. When you go to the shop, there are greater opportunities, because you mix with so many people, for the virus to spread. So we really want to appeal that visits to the shops be as infrequent as possible, only go when it's really necessary, and keep it as short as possible, and we have to maintain social distance and adequate sanitation arrangement in the various shops. When I'm talking of retail, I'm of course not only talking of the large supermarkets. We also mean here the uh, reference to uh, informal trading, Uh, and to spaza shops. The categories of retail sales that will be expanded include children's clothing, winter goods like winter clothes, blankets and heaters, stationary and educational books, tobacco products uh, and personal ICT equipment. Those are things like computers and um, uh, 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 mobile phones and other home office equipment. I move next to mining. Mining has already uh, begun the process of workers returning to work. They do so in batches because of the large numbers involved. Not all workers in mining can go back at the same time. And my colleague, Minister Mantash, has already outlined how that process will work. In level four, the new addition is that those workers who work in open cast mining, in other words, not underground. Uh, they will be able to go back in larger numbers, again in phases but returning uh, in the period from the current uh, 50% eventually uh, in phases to 100%. Services will also increase. From some professional services that will be required by firms that now open, so if a car factory opens in part, they may need people who do professional services engineering services, accounting services, legal services, and so on. So those services will follow the opening of uh, the economy in Level 4. But it also includes uh, other, uh, other key uh, services. And uh, I can draw attention to call centers will now have an expanded number of activities that take place. Uh, recycling uh, sectors will also reopen, including informal recyclers. Construction will have expanded activities. Previously it was really critical maintenance and construction works. It will now be expanded to include civil engineer public work projects and these include water, energy and sanitation projects. And we also will be bringing road and bridge projects uh, in during level four so that uh, in rural areas we can begin to attend to the importance of building new roads, maintaining roads. As regards restaurants and other places serving food, uh, restaurants and takeaways as as well as other similar places will be open for delivery only and that delivery means that the customer don't come to the shop or the um, takeaways but the food goes to the customer because the experience all over the world has been that that is a better way of limiting the movement of people. So you won't be able to visit a restaurant uh, to sit down uh, or to fetch your food, but you can phone, you can make some other arrangement, to online uh, and, uh, and ensure that um, uh, you are able to tap into the food that's available. It's an opportunity to create a food delivery network in townships as well. Now, we've pulled out a few key areas. We will share a detailed document uh, with all the proposed sectors and what changes between level five and level four with the sectors concerned. So we'll be sending that to business organizations, to trade unions, to uh, sector organizations. We will also produce a simple graphic, a simple graphic that will uh, show in very clear ways Uh, what is uh, envisaged in Level 4. What are the activities that will reopen? What are the social activities uh, that we as South Africans now will be able to engage in so that it's clear and it's uh, it's something that uh, we can can all have an equal understanding of it. So what we've outlined today and what the document, the more detailed document, will show is a phasing in of more parts uh, of the productive economy. But we are having to look at all of this through the spectacles of health to make sure that a uh, level of infection is not spread uh, significantly, that we don't get a huge pressure on our healthcare system with large numbers of people uh, getting into the healthcare system. We're going to do whatever is possible to try to limit that. Inside COVID-19, from Biz News.
0: Ron Whelans, the Chief Commercial Officer at Discovery Health. Uh, Ron, we've been listening over the weekend to Ibram Patel, the uh, Minister of Economic Affairs, telling us how the lockdown is going to end or rather from level five to level four. Does it sound too bad? Uh, Listening to his insights, he says four out of ten people in the economy are actually going to be going back to work as from the 1st of May. How are you reading it?
4: Yeah, I mean, I guess it's really a transition, Alec, uh, rather than an ending of a lockdown. Um, uh, As I mentioned to you in our last year meeting, it's a transition phase. Um, So I think there are an expansion around uh, manufacturing and mining and all the other industrials, which we discussed last time. I think there's some interesting expansion around um, some of the yeah, retail and office-based yeah, services. Yes, yeah, so we'll see some parts of your yeah, retail come back yeah, m- more specifically. Yeah, things related to winter clothing uh, in particular. Um, some office equipment, I think, yeah, which would be welcome for office, uh, your home office environments. Um, but then yeah, we still have yeah, many restrictions as well. Yes, yeah, so our, our h- hospitality industry, for example, is still going to be restricted. Restaurants are still restricted. Alcohol sales are still you know, restricted. You know, so I think a uh, reflection around your know, four out of ten is you know, probably probably be a, a, about right uh, I think you know, from a discovery perspective we've um, actually taken a decision to continue to operate as um, as not uh, you know, as usual lockdowns so operate at a, at around about a level five there's one or two of our teams that will now begin to come back into the office that you know, would be you know weren't able to operate effectively around your know, level five restrictions but instead of you know, ending up in what um, yeah, the New Zealand Prime Minister calls a yo-yo situation where you're bouncing from level four to level five. We've taken a decision to be more conservative, um, you know, give our, uh, you know, give the organization some pre- predictability over the next year, month, month or so. Um, yeah, it's, uh, certainly a, a challenging, you know, op- operating environment. And, uh, I think you know, the one thing that is going to be tricky to manage and we're going to need some more clarity on is how the different levels will affect you know, national, provincial and municipal. So how that's going to play out is you're not entirely clear. And you know, certainly if you look at you know, some of the big metropoles, the city of Joburg, the city of Cape Town, for example, those still look like uh, they could be you know, red, red zones and you know, potentially level five. And How you're operating an environment where some of your metropoles are level five and some of your metropoles are level four is, is um, you know, complicated. And for that reason, you know, we're going to operate largely on level five with some parts of your level four in place.
0: So the way that I look at it at the moment or from what I understand is that the whole country then goes to level four as from the 1st of May. But how then do the regions come into play, i.e. with Johannesburg being one of the red zones, as you mentioned earlier, does that mean that it might go back to level five at some point?
4: We're not clear on that Alec, um, we don't have a lot of clarity on that, we're hoping for more clarity on that you know, during the course of the, the year this week, um, there's obviously a lot of the, the regulations will be updated and revised during the course of the week and we've been asked for input and comment around many of the regulations already whether they're in the financial services sector and, or in the health sector, um, but yeah, we'll, we'll have to figure that out during during the course of the week.
0: There are some uh, pretty nice graphics that have been published uh, by the department that we have all over the place. So, for instance, our own industry, it was easy to see. It said media. It said online publishing. We are part of it. So we can go back to work. But we're going to have to wear uh, or, or we'll have to do things a little differently. Maybe you can just use my example or business's example of what we might have, what we will have to do differently to what we did in the past.
4: Yeah, I think our whole world has has changed from an operating environment yeah, perspective. And I think yeah, there's two elements to that, Alec. You yeah, know, going back to the office. Yeah, the first one is um, a, a prevention element. Yeah, so all of the prevention you know, mechanisms around uh, temperature screening, um, yeah, screening at your entrances, masks, hand sanitizers, facial separation, and so on and so forth. I think a second uh, element uh, is. Um, a reaction element. Yeah, so you've got prevention on the one hand and reaction on the other hand. Yeah, as we move into this new environment, I think it's your common cause that all businesses and uh, you know, across South Africa will at some stage have a, a COVID infection. Ho- hopefully those are you know, very well you're isolated and, uh, and, and contained. But given you know, the more pervasive, pervasive spread of infections across the country, it's just you are going to end up with an infection at at some point in time over the next few months, and you've got to be ready to respond to those. So when those things happen, um, you know, they can involve you lots of anxiety and uh, you're scrambling, you know, for for solutions. So what we've got in place at Discovery is what we call a COVID response team. It's a team that's led by clinicians across our, our business, and that COVID response team is able to, quickly get in to any given situation assess the situation contain the situation arrange you for quarantine arrange for testing and i think that 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 mechanism is is you' certainly going to be critical over the next year three three to four months and we're also working with know many other employer partners across the discovery group to help them implement just similar mechanisms around you reacting to to cases so yeah, to your point, it's both um, prevention on the one hand, all of the activities that we've had yeah, thus far, and then your reaction on on the other hand. So
0: you're going to work now with a mask on. Would you have to wear that inside the building?
4: Yep, masks are now mandatory. Um, it's a uh, little uncomfortable. Yeah, fortunately, we are ending up in, a, in in winter, so masks are more tolerable in winter. They would be very difficult to wear in a South African summer environment. Um Masks are you know, I think are not only mandatory for traveling to work, but we're making masks mandatory in our in our offices and as well. I think you know, the other thing we're doing across our offices is we've now reconfigured um, your know, desk spaces across your offices. So we actually you know, in the offices what we've got is your know, special stickers you know for every desk. you're only allowed to sit at a, a desk where there's a green sticker, your orange sticker, you can't sit at that 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 desk. Um, and you know, we've measured out the office so that you know, we are guaranteeing you know, at least your one.8 know, 1.8, 1.8 to two meters you know, spatial separation across you know, all, all of our offices. Um, I think you know, the third thing you know, from a prevention perspective is we have um, significantly upped up our, our screening protocols at the door. If you can prevent infection coming into the building, you limit so many complica- so many complications. So temperature screening we think is critical, and you know, we have it across all of our our, our offices. Um, or what we're also doing is symptom uh, checking, you know, for anyone who's coming to the office. So any of the COVID signs and symptoms, cough, fever, sore throat, uh, diarrhea or gastro- gastrointestinal illnesses. Anyone who's picked up with those symptoms, you would know, isolate in a in a separate room. Our paramedics do another round of assessments on those. Um, and you'll know, monitor them for a while. If they're fine, then they're allowed in. If you know, there's any uh, you know, concern, then we'd rather get those people home. <laughs>
0: You've mentioned temperature a couple of times. How does that reflect whether someone has been infected?
4: Yes, yeah, so in many instances, fever is the first sign of a, a COVID infection. Um, the, the only challenge with uh, your temperature and um, your, your clinician colleagues will tell you and your doctors will tell you across the country, it's quite a crude measure. So your temperature varies from you know, for instance, your morning to afternoon. So you would have a lower temperature in the morning and a higher temperature in the afternoon. So there's a certain circadian rhythm on it. Temperature also you know, uh, varies you know, depending on you know, the size of individuals, smaller people, larger people. Um, it also then interestingly varies and modulates across your men- menstrual cycles as well. You know, so temperature is quite a, a, you know, an interesting metric in that uh, there's many variables at, uh, at, at play in you know, temperature. It is a lead, it is one of the leading COVID in indicators, so it is you know, very useful from a screening perspective. I think uh, also just to give you know, our fellow um, your business colleagues across South Africa some reassurance, what we're finding is that our temperature screening is um, actually identifying a very small proportion of your people coming into our buildings. Yeah, so I was quite worried when we you know, implemented temperature. I thought we would have Many more people identified for additional screening and isolation has actually been quite a quite a small proportion and you know, well well below five percent.
0: And what is the degree that one's temperature changes by to be uh, concerning that you might actually have picked up the virus?
4: Yeah. Sure. Over the last two weeks, we've debated uh, temperature and analyzed temperature more than I've done in my entire medical career. Uh, (laughs) It's been fascinating. I've learned a lot about temperature in the last two weeks. Essentially, the the threshold is 37.3. So that's the the cutoff for temperature. That's a WHO standard on uh, a a, a temperature screening threshold, Um, and that's a... Uh, in accordance with European protocols, in in accordance with U.S. protocols, and in fact, the New New Zealanders have implemented something similar. So that's your point number one. Point number two is anything between 37.3 and 38 degrees is low-grade fever. Uh, In other words, you're in an intermediate phase on on temperature. Once you start going above 38, then that's your conclusive that that's definitely your fever. So... um, So what we're, I mean, what we're implementing is yeah, anyone is above 37.3, we do additional screening and additional temperature checks on. If you're above 38, then you know, you're home immediately. If you're below 38 and above 37.3, what we'll do is you know, we'll watch carefully for other uh, signs and symptoms and you know, do a full assessment you know, with our medical team and our paramedic uh, uh, team who, you know, as I said, do at the entrances of our buildings. So as far
0: as other companies who clearly aren't as as jacked up as Discovery would be, first of all, you've got to get someone taking the temperature of every employee who comes in. Secondly, they've got to be wearing masks. Thirdly, uh, what about the hands? Is sanitizing enough or should people be wearing gloves?
4: We've implemented gloves in very select areas. So people who are, for instance, you're managing your food as one, and your food handlers should be wearing gloves in any event. I think the second area we've implemented gloves in is is, is our tech support area. So people who are handling equipment that gets passed from different different people, so keyboards, monitors, um, laptops, and, and, and so on and so forth. So you know, we haven't implemented gloves you know, more broadly than a few select areas where there are higher risks of actual your know, hand-hand contact. The critics
0: are saying, we're all going to get this anyway, so what's the point of putting in so many obstacles? Aren't we doing this as a bit of an overkill? What's
4: your thought on that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, this is a, a very hot debate. And I think, Alec, like, the debate happens at At two levels. I think the the first thing is there's a national debate, right? So what we're trying to do nationally, and we've spoken about this many times, is uh, flatten the curve. And the reason you want to flatten the curve is that we don't put additional strain on our healthcare system. Uh, we can't afford to fill up ICU bed and critical care bed capacity. Uh, If we do do that, then when you end up with additional cases, then you're not able to manage uh, those appropriately. So I think the first part is flatten the curve from a national perspective. From a business perspective, and we had exactly this conversation, the conversation this morning, you've got to think of it in a similar way. Imagine it you know, across your operation, you end up with a spike, and you end up with an outbreak across you know, your, um, your, your mine or your factory or your retail business, um, and you spike quickly. You end up with a lot of cases. What have you got to do then? You've effectively got to shut down an entire operation. Whereas if you flatten the curve and you have – A handful of infections and a few infections here here, here and there that you're able to manage and contain, you're able to drive through that for a much longer period of time, so it has less impact on your your operational performance. And uh, we we think of it in exactly that way at uh, at Discovery. We acknowledge that over the next few months it's inevitable that we will end up with a few infections across our offices. We're going to do everything to make sure that those infections are contained, that no staff are um, yeah, impacted in, in in any any way, we don't want to put anyone any, anyone at risk. Um, but it also allows us to maintain some you know, operational con- continuity over time. And you know, for many businesses and you know, dis- you know, discovery, our clients rely on us. Yeah. so we are. We need to be paying medical medical aid claims, and we need to be sort of supporting uh, people through healthcare crises. So it's critical for us to be able to sustain you know, the operation over the next year, uh, three or four months. If we're we're out of operation, uh, there's much more healthcare risk in uh, you know, the South African you know, healthcare system. Inside COVID nineteen from Biznews.
0: Chris Bateman is a member of the Biznews team. It has been for quite some time. But Chris, before you were working with us, you've had a, a long and distinguished career in medical journalism. So I guess if anybody knows what this whole COVID-19 issue is or how serious it is, uh, you've, you've certainly got to be up there.
5: Alec, up there is, is quite an elevated way to describe it, but uh, this uh, I'm in with some some severe luminaries. But um, look, I've observed a, a lot of a lot of health matters dating back to Anto Shabalala and Tabombeki with the AIDS um, tragedy or, or, or crisis, as we might have called it at the time. Um, so yeah, I've been following the COVID thing and 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 um, curating a lot of of your COVID stories, which have sort of kept me up to speed and also. Interviewing a lot of the players, including some people in the war room, um, and 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 I uh, have a personal experience uh, which 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 might uh, also be of value.
0: Well, no, it, it's it's not might be of value, Chris, because you're going through something extraordinarily uh, uh, personal. And thanks for sharing it with us. Just to to start off with, you were diagnosed with cancer. How long ago was that?
5: Uh it was November last year. Yeah you know, I had Barrett's esophagus which is basically a, a reflux condition which was intermittent and chronic but happened so seldom that I really didn't pay it the attention it deserved
0: And what happened
5: Um what happened was uh I, I was in a braai with with my sister and brother-in-law and enjoying a, a juicy steak and um I, I, I started refluxing quite severely with some pain in my sternum, which wasn't unfamiliar. I'd had it before, but this was quite severe. And, um, it lasted about five or ten minutes. I couldn't eat more, but it sort of subsided. I was hiccuping and it was severely uncomfortable and I sort of sore around the sternum. And my sister, who'd seen it before, a few months before, said, no, no, Chris, enough. Um, I'm phoning my, my gastroenterologist golfing buddy and you are going to make an appointment, uh, which I duly did. And to cut a long story short, um, she put me, in fact, she lives around the corner, picked me up in her car, took me to Tiger where she's head of that department, uh, put me under anaesthetic, um, did a biopsy and a gastroscopy. And a week later, when I was at a emergency medicine conference, got the call from her to say, sorry, Chris, but I'm afraid that, you know, you've got esophageal cancer.
0: And what has happened subsequent to
5: that? Um, oh a whole lot of stuff. Um, it's been a bit of a roller coaster, but um, you know, I I've managed to stay buoyant and um, you know, it's it's there's a whole lot of aspects that come to play. I mean the first when I first heard about it, I was at this emergency medicine conference, listening ironically to a, a session on um uh resilience uh amongst um uh, emergency healthcare workers and, and how they handle resilience. And, of course, you know, the, the, a few minutes before attending the session, I, I'd be told that I've got esophageal cancer. Um, well, let's see. Uh, yeah, The first thing that came to mind is how do I let my relatives know? Um, and at that stage, I didn't know what's turned out to be phase one, um, stage one, which is, you know, curable, treatable. So, you know, that accounts for a lot of my buoyancy. Um, but the first thing that occurred to me was, how do I tell my my closest and dearest? Now, I've got elderly parents, 88 and 90, uh, both in fairly good health, but subject to the vagaries of, of old age. Uh, and then I've got two pre-teenage daughters and, and my wife. So, you know, how do you break it to people? Because everybody's got a view of cancer, and a lot of it is, is, is scary. They have a much scarier view than it need be. And diagnoses obviously vary from person to person. And mine was a very light diagnosis as, things, as these things go. So, yeah, um, it, it was how, how, do I, how do I tell my, 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 my loved ones? That was my, my first concern.
0: And then we get COVID-19 while you're going through chemo. And presumably, well, you can tell us what is chemo? What does chemo do to the body? And well, why does it make one more vulnerable to something like
5: yeah, that? Yeah, you know, uh, it, cancer treatment has evolved to the point where they now use immunotherapy, which is in human trials. And I'm not on. I mean, you need to get onto the trial Uh it uses the body's own immune system to, to fight it. But, but the, the predominant chemotherapy today is a shotgun approach. So it, it, it nails both your, your good. Uh, your cancer cells and your white blood cells. So your blood cell, your immune count goes way, way down. So you become as compromised from an immune point of view as the three million South Africans we have who are HIV positive and not on ARVs. Um, So, you know, you are incredibly vulnerable. So I've taken, I've become (laughs) really hyper aware of the precautions we generally need to take.
0: And what are those, Chris? How have you managed to, or what are you doing to protect yourself? Because I guess for you, if COVID-19 were to infect you, it would be far more serious than for most.
5: Well, my oncologist said to me straight out, she said, Chris, I, 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 you know, I, I quizzed her, she said, Chris, if you get a, a, a comorbid infection, um, you will die. Um, I think she was trying to, you know, get me to to, to wake up and shake up a bit. But uh, there's there's a lot of truth to that. Um, basically, you, you are you know the infection gets hold of you and just runs runs right. So I'm I'm very much locked down. Have been for ooh, about over, well over a month now, longer than the lockdown. Um, and it impacts because. You know, if my wife goes shopping. We try and do it online, but as most people know, there's quite a long waiting list before you can get your groceries delivered. So she has to go out until we get onto that sort of delayed delivery. And the few times she's gone out, you run out of strange things like dog food, and you know, um, it's it's as good as me going out because if somebody comes back infected, that that's me done. Um, and the other aspect is, is education. My kids are at school, junior school. Um if they stagger on stage three or four, they're going back to schools according to standards as being debated. Um, I, I'm, we're not going to send our kids back, you know, when, when, when they can go back by, by, you know, to the authorities, um, because if, if they get a chance to get coronavirus, I, I'm, I'm done. You know, I, 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 could be done, you know, I don't want to over dramatize it, but we've got to be incredibly careful. And then within home, we've got very, people have been incredibly helpful on chemotherapy days. They deliver frozen foods, neighbors and friends, um, phone and offer, can they get groceries for us, which involves them washing down the groceries, arriving gloved and masked, not necessarily gloved, but masked at least. And I will click open the gate. They drop it inside. It's already been disinfected. We re-disinfect the, the say, it's a, a, a bag of dog food, and then we bring it in. Um, so yeah, you know, we we we're, uh, I, I guess it really, as a healthcare journalist, it's it's incredibly helpful because it's made me. It, it's it's I, you don't have that kind of distant, you know, observation from a distant thing that you have in journalism. I'm right in it. Um, so when I write about it, I, I, I write about it with with some passion for for personal protection i mean our healthcare workers is a particular issue for me um you know they really need to to be well protected because if we don't protect them are we going to be in trouble
0: chris how do you feel then about so much of the commentary that goes around and people saying it's not really serious and let's go back into the economy and so on is it just uninformed or is there a case for it
5: um it depends where on the spectrum you look. I mean, I recently curated one of, one of the business news stories, which gave a global historical view of mortality statistics. And, and COVID is, is, is not a, historically, it's, it's not a huge cause of death. Um, if you look at it from that perspective, but then when you, when you zoom in, to the South African situation and context, and, and the fault so many of the commentators make is, is they tend to compare it with other countries, even third world countries. But we're particularly unique, as, as I see it, because we've got these three million people not on ARVs that I mentioned earlier. We've got a very high co-infection with TB and multi-drug resistant TB, which is a big problem on its own. And in the Western Cape, you know, we, we're now leading the field, and that's, I think that's got a lot to do with, with our, our TB burden um you know lung any, anybody with pulmonary problems um is particularly susceptible and so we 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 have a population for all the argument you have about the youthful south african population therefore we don't have the elderly syndrome um i i don't buy that because we we have a hugely immune compromised population and um you know just you have to look at the numbers and you have to look at at the the curve which is not flattening to realize that all we're doing with lockdown is buying time for our healthcare system, which is pretty beleaguered with the quadruple burden of disease already. Time to prepare for what will inevitably be a, a flood of cases. Now the mortality rate will be relatively low, but but the actually hospitalisation rate may be very high. I mean we're in unknown territory here, but I, I reckon we need to err on the side of caution. I really do think we do, we, we need to do that.
0: And from your own perspective. Going through chemo and having your immune system suppressed, how long does that last? Because I guess what must be going through your mind is, well, when is a vaccine going to come through? On the one part, and on the other part, when is my chemo going to be finished so that I can get back well, to normal? Well, yeah,
5: um, the, the vaccine is is perhaps more of a I don't know, speculate, speculatively known. They're talking about you know, before the middle of next year or early next year um given what the trials are showing. But um uh let's see, I um I will um my op was initially due in any time between July and September and I've already had I think eighteen sessions of chemo. I go in there for three hours once a week with a two week break every three sessions. Um but the The COVID curved ball for me and for anybody out there who's going to have surgery that's not elective i'm talking about emergency surgery or 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 surgery that is is potentially life saving like mine would be um it is in is in a little bit of troubled waters because um we're looking at bringing my up forward to to June which is when I can Um, from a prognostic point of view, um, be operated on. Um, I've had a curveball because i got lung clots, which I had to go into warfarin and then another drug to thin the blood. Now, I've got to be off that because they're not going to cut if you're going to bleed out on them. But um, so the sooner the better. And I'm looking at June and saying, well, Slim Karim, the the head of the the war room, is saying, you know, September it's going to peak. Um, and and the numbers are increasing by twice the, the 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 rate that they need to to lift a lockdown. So uh, by June, um, you know it could be that the private hospitals who are coming to the party and putting up COVID patients uh, will have a, a scary now. My risk will be a lot higher because they'll have quite a few COVID patients. Now I've been reassured that they will that they completely section off the the, the non-COVID. There's an ICU where I'll have to go after the operation. For two days and then I go uh, into a general ward for two weeks, but all of that increases my exposure and my risk. The op itself is a four to six hour op. They remove most of the stomach and they create a new esophageal or a slick Um, and, and the guy who's doing it has done dozens of them. So I'm, I'm fairly confident that it's going to work, but you know, it's the COVID. I asked seven co-survivors during chemo the other day. I said, what are you more scared of? Um, dying or or being infected with COVID or or your cancer killing you. And to a person, they said they were more scared of the COVID.
0: Once you've finished with that side of it, so June comes and goes, you have the operation. As you say, it, it is something that the guy's done many times before. How long does it take you to build or rebuild your immune system?
5: You know, Alec, I haven't really asked that question as a healthcare journalist you think I would have. Um, I've I've had other things on my mind. It's sort of, you know, step by step, day by day approach. But um, I I would imagine um, he's speaking about waiting, building up my immune system before the op. So he's talking about a three to four week wait. So that gives you some idea of the parameters. I would imagine I, I still need to have another nine sessions of chemo after the op as a kind of a cleanup that there's no systemic spread or anything just to, it's kind of a full stop, you know, insurance. Um So I would imagine that, you know, I, I'll get a bit stronger before the op to, to, so that I'm a bit stronger for any, any virus or, or, or to handle the op. Post op, I would imagine that, that, yeah, that would be three months and then I have to come off the chemo. Um, and that would probably take another two months. So I'm probably talking about mid, mid-June next year, you know, I'm I'm, I'm guessing now, but yeah.
0: But but just getting a feeling, because there are many people in a similar situation that you're in, uh, let alone the 3 million HIV positive uh, South Africans who aren't on antiretrovirals, the lockdown then for you, does that mean it's literally for another year, perhaps? (sighs)
5: I guess so. It depends how how the the virus plays out and how the peak plays out. Um, let's, let's, we can only, you know, this is the most amazing thing about this is, is you know, we talk about philosophically and psychologically living in the moment for the moment. Um, if anything has taught me how to live for the moment, it's this, because I talked to my oncologist and she says she's got, you know, patients and she's never been so challenged with her 35 odd current patients. Who are immune compromised and firing questions at her all the time. Um, so I, I can only guess if it's going to peak in September, um, then it's going to slow down perhaps. Um, yeah, I, I could well be in lockdown until, until, you know, I, I, guess, um, the first half of next year.
0: Inside COVID-19 from Business. News.
2: A study by the Human Sciences Research Council has unveiled the extent of the hardship that a section of the South African population experienced during the lockdown. Presenting the findings this weekend, Professor Priscilla Reddy said that the majority of South Africans adhered to the lockdown, but there was a group that did meet more than 50 people. The lockdown also gave one in two people a sense of security and that they were at a low risk. Access to food was hard, with about two-thirds of residents from townships having no money for food. Here are some of our other findings and recommendations on how to address these issues.
6: It is saying that 29% of the people reported that they came into close contact with 10 or more people during the past seven days when they were out of their homes. Another 15% indicated in another question that they had used public transport to go to the shops. These are all high-risk situations. How do we move from data to action? It is important to use psychosocial and behavioral determinants to build targeted, culturally appropriate behavior change approach regarding social distancing and its meaning in the local context. We've asked people to deconstruct their normal lives to break the chain of transmission. The strategy here, or the health promotion strategies, involve a combination of strategies from behavior change, policy-level interventions, and economic interventions. The message is that South Africans have to disrupt their social relations and activities in order to save lives. By adopting social distancing, anyone can be infectious with or without symptoms, so everyone needs to have a duty to protect others by wearing masks whenever they are out of their homes. The message is for public transport to disinfect the taxis, for example, and to ensure the use of masks and social distancing both inside and outside of the taxis. Our messages need to be enabling what is it you can do to prevent the spread rather than what you can't do and what you shouldn't do. What we've seen is that just under a quarter, about 24% of the participants had no money to buy food. More than half, 55% of informal settlement residents had no money for food. About two-thirds of the participants were from townships and they had no money to buy food. A very important one here is access to chronic medication. What the data is saying is that approximately 13.2% of the population indicated that their chronic medication was inaccessible during the lockdown. About 13 to 25% of those in informal settlements and rural areas and farms indicated that the chronic medication was not easily accessible. So, how do we move from data to action? Impoverished and remote communities continue to face barriers to our healthcare access. This determines the healthcare seeking behavior. These people who are struggling to access chronic medication during the lockdown will probably be the same people who struggle to access healthcare services related to COVID-19. It is therefore important to relook at primary healthcare at the municipal level, and to re-examine the role of community health workers and family caregivers and the youth. The strategy is one of behavior change as well as a policy level intervention. We need to build a social compact to create a new model between the healthcare system and the local community at municipal level. The message is take the medicines to the home. Perhaps we could learn from the Cuban experience here. We also tried to look at some determinants of behavior. We're looking particularly at financial capability, where we measured financial capability with several items. I feel that the coronavirus lockdown will make it difficult for me to pay my bills, will make it difficult for me to earn an income, will make it difficult for me to feed my family and difficult to keep my job. We see that the percentage for these uh, items vary from 45 to 62%, a large percent uh, who can't pay their bills and are worried about losing their jobs. So what is the data from action saying here? Structure the packages and expand the reach of the government's economic and social relief programs in a way that every person feels that they are being taken care of and in a way that ensures accountability at all levels with immediate consequences for violations. The health promotion strategy here is multiple. It's a behavior change one, it's an economic one, and a health policy one. The message is that the government and society as a whole acknowledges that some, perce- some communities are struggling and that people have no money to buy food. This acknowledgement will continue to buy goodwill. Create a social compact with communities and the public and the private sector to ensure sustainable financial and social relief. This should include promoting intergenerational cohesion, sustainability of food vouchers or food banks at the level of the district adherence to regulations in terms of accessing cigarettes and alcohol. What are the findings telling us? Cigarettes, that is 12%, were more accessible than alcohol, that is 3% during the lockdown. So how do we move from data to action? One in five people in South Africa currently smoke, and approximately one in ten smokers were able to access cigarettes during the lockdown. The continued access of cigarettes in the informal settlements could imply informal trade. The experience with law enforcement we found that 74.8% indicated that they had no involvement with law enforcement, 14% felt that they had been treated in a rude or rough manner, 7% felt that they were treated fairly well, and 3.5% felt that they were treated in a a respectful manner. So the findings are telling us that the majority of people were not involved with law enforcement and 15% were treated roughly. The health promotion strategy here is one of promoting behavior change and a policy-level intervention. We have to provide clear guidance and support to people so that they are able to adhere to the regulations, acknowledge that it's difficult for people to make these major changes willingly to protect their families and communities, law enforcement should be provided with clear guidelines and support to enable them to deal with intentional violators and the risk-takers in society. Some closing remarks. We are at a moment of psychological crisis. The situation is immediate. We, however, do have empirical data that demonstrates goodwill solidarity, altruism, and Ubuntu. South Africans are saying, we have your back. However, we need to act quickly, because in the medium term, challenges will open us to scrutiny and debate. The difficulty in accessing food, medicines, could erode the goodwill. The survey has shown that we have a window of immediate opportunity.
2: British Prime Minister Boris Johnson is back in Number 10 Downing Street after he recovered from COVID-19. But he poured cold water on hopes that the UK economy will soon be opened up. Johnson said he did not want to throw away the sacrifices Brits made to fight what he called this invisible mugger. The number of known positive cases in the UK now stands at more than 152,000 cases, with 20,000 hospital deaths.
1: I'm sorry I've been away from my desk for much longer than I would have liked. And I want to thank everybody who has stepped up, in particular the first Secretary of State, Dominic Raab, who's done a terrific job. But once again, I want to thank you, the people of this country, for the sheer grit and guts you've shown and are continuing to show. Every day, I know that this virus brings new sadness and mourning to households across the land. And it is still true that this is the biggest single challenge this country has faced since the war. And I in no way minimize the continuing problems we face. And yet it is also true that we are making progress with fewer hospital admissions, fewer COVID patients in ICU And real signs now that we are passing through the peak. And thanks to your forbearance, your good good sense, your altruism, your spirit of community. Thanks to our collective national resolve, we are on the brink of achieving that first clear mission. To prevent our national health service from being overwhelmed in a way that tragically we have seen elsewhere. And that is how and why we are now beginning to turn the tide. If this virus were a physical assailant, an unexpected and invisible mugger, which I can tell you from personal experience it is, then this is the moment when we have begun together to wrestle it to the floor. And so it follows that this is the moment of opportunity. This is the moment when we can press home our advantage. It is also the moment of maximum risk, because I know there will be many people looking now at our apparent success and beginning to wonder whether now is the time to go easy on those social distancing measures. And I know how hard and how stressful it has been to give up, even temporarily, those ancient and basic freedoms, not seeing friends, not seeing loved ones, working from home, managing the kids, worrying about your job and your firm. So let me say directly also to British business, to the shopkeepers, to the entrepreneurs, to the hospitality sector, to everyone on whom our economy depends. I understand your impatience, I share your anxiety and I know that without our private sector, without the drive and commitment of the wealth creators of this country, there will be no economy to speak of. There will be no cash to pay for our public services, no way of funding our NHS. And yes, I can see the long-term consequences of lockdown as clearly as anyone. And so, yes, I entirely share your urgency. It's the government's urgency. And yet we must also recognise the risk of a second spike, the risk of losing control of that virus and letting the reproduction rate go back over one. Because that would mean not only a new wave of death and disease, but also an economic disaster. And we would be forced once again to slam on the brakes across the whole country and the whole economy and re-impose restrictions in such a way as to do more and lasting damage. And so I know it is tough and I want to get this economy moving as fast as I can, but I refuse to throw away all the effort and the sacrifice of the British people and to risk a second major outbreak and huge loss of life and the overwhelming of the NHS. And I ask you to contain your impatience because I believe we are coming now to the end of the first phase of this conflict. And in spite of all the suffering, we have so nearly succeeded. We defied so many predictions. We did not run out of ventilators or ICU beds. We did not allow our NHS to collapse. And on the contrary, we have so far collectively shielded our NHS so that our incredible doctors and nurses and healthcare staff have been able to shield all of us from an outbreak that would have been far worse and we collectively flattened the peak and so when we're sure that this first phase is over and that we're meeting our five tests deaths falling nhs protected rate of infection down really sorting out the challenges of testing and ppe avoiding a second peak then that will be the time to move on to the second phase, in which we continue to suppress the disease and keep the reproduction rate, the R rate down, but begin gradually to refine the economic and social restrictions and one by one to fire up the engines of this vast UK economy. And in that process, difficult judgments will be made. And we simply cannot spell out now how fast or slow or even when those changes will be made, though clearly the government will be saying much more about this in the coming days. And I want to serve notice now that these decisions will be taken with the maximum possible transparency. And I want to share all our working and our thinking, my thinking, with you the British people. And of course, we will be relying as ever on the science to inform us as we have from the beginning. But we will also be reaching out to build the biggest possible consensus across business, across industry, across all parts of our United Kingdom, across party lines, bringing in opposition parties as far as we possibly can. Because I think that's no less than what the British people would expect. And I can tell you now that preparations are underway and have been for weeks to allow us to win phase two of this fight, as I believe we are now on track to prevail in phase one. And so I say to you, finally, if you can keep going in the way that you have kept going so far, if you can help protect our NHS, save lives. And if we as a country can show the same spirit of optimism and energy shown by Captain Tom Moore, who turns 100 this week, if we can show the same spirit of unity and determination as we've all shown in the past six weeks, then I have absolutely no doubt that we will beat it together, we will come through this all the faster, and the United Kingdom will emerge stronger than ever before. Thank you all very much.
2: One of the shocking statistics of COVID-19 patients are how few survive once they are taken off ventilators. Most don't make it. In the largest study so far looking at mortality rates among Among coronavirus patients on ventilators at London's Intensive Care National Audit and Research Centre, it was found that among 98 ventilated patients in the UK, just 33 were discharged alive. The numbers from a study in Wuhan in China are worse – only three out of 22 ventilated patients survived. That is not the only problem with ventilators. Many patients find that when they are discharged, that the recovery is long and that they are very weak. A doctor from Somerset in the United States, Dr. Michael Rodriguez, explained to Bloomberg that for many, beating the virus is just the beginning.
7: Sometimes when you're on the ventilator for two weeks, you're, you're not able to go back to how you were prior to getting sick and you need to go to rehab for some period of time to be able to do your activities of of daily living? You may have some mild cognitive impairments after being on the ventilator. So, for instance, someone that worked as an accountant prior to being on the ventilator and being in the ICU, they may have a tough time going back to work. Someone, uh, an older person who was maybe independent and drove and took care of all their own activities, Well, they may not be able to go back to that same lifestyle and they might need help. They might not be able to drive. They may not be able to shop and and walk around the supermarket and carry out their own activities of daily living. Your overall condition may take some time to get back to its pre-COVID, pre-ICU state, if if it even gets back to that pre-ICU state.
0: This has been episode 25 of Inside COVID-19. Access every episode by subscribing on Spotify or iTunes or by downloading the BizNews podcast app in the Apple App Store. I'm Alec Hogg. Until tomorrow, cheerio. This conversation on COVID-19 was made possible by Discovery.